I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Longvine is jaw-droppingly surreal. It's a place that, by all rights, simply shouldn't exist. I'm about to take you inside this massive greenhouse, a lush indoor jungle, extending horizontally the length of multiple city blocks with arrays of tomato vines, row after row, suspended vertically some 20 feet high. Oh, and I should tell you, this whole greenhouse is surrounded by high desert and the smell of sagebrush. The story of this highly improbable desert farm gets even more weird because the whole thing is attached, as if by a giant umbilical cord, to a natural gas-fired power plant situated just across the road. The power plant infuses the greenhouse with its waste heat and excess CO2, both of which are especially useful, I'm told, for hydroponically grown crops. The work performed on this farm or factory entails the sort of technological precision that it's going to take one day to grow tomatoes in space, maybe in a colony somewhere near Mars, but that's not going to happen anytime soon. And so no one at Longvine is growing Elon Musk melons. The Longvine Growing Company is turning out red, juicy, locally grown tomatoes by the millions for hungry souls right here on planet Earth who live within a day's drive of its loading docks in Mona, Utah. So we're about to enter the greenhouse, or one of the greenhouses. I understand uh, that there, Travis, some almost 30 acres of... Yeah, that's correct. 28 acres. 28 acres. Shall we head in? Yeah. You know, food safety is essential, especially with tomatoes. We want to make sure that everything that is outside stays outside of our greenhouse. So we've got these hand wash stations where you put your hands in and it goes through a cycle where it washes your hands, you step in as well, and it will actually wash your shoes as well. Stay in for the full cycle and after it shuts off, these guards will actually let you in. Now I wish every restaurant had these so that it would force everybody to wash their hands and not let them escape the restroom until they did so. But go ahead and stick your hands in and step inside there. No, just the shoes, the bottom of the shoes yeah. will... Uh, just a little bit of the shoes. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. should be good. And then, yep, step through those guards and you'll be good. The contraptions used to disinfect us aren't rocket science. I would call them medium, not high-tech, but they are important and fully automatic. While the sterilizing liquid rinses our hands, suds start foaming and swirling around the soles of our shoes... I get a station to myself, my producer Eric Schultzka uses the next station over, and frankly, I was just a little nervous that my socks would get wet. But nobody inspected or washed or really even cared about my ankles. It was apparently all about the shoes and what they might be tracking in. Travis Jones, the general manager of Longvine, whose voice you heard just moments ago, exhibited great hospitality as he directed us to a rack of white coats and hats and little booties to go over our newly sterilized shoe soles. These folks at Longvine are super nice, but when it comes to possible contamination, they don't mess around. Okay, so we're just sitting here minding our own business, and all of a sudden this foam comes spraying out like it thinks there's a fire at an airport. That's Eric talking. I can tell from his voice that he's really getting into this. Tell us what that was just happened there. So this is a biofoam that helps our carts as they come in and out of the greenhouse. Again, we want to keep what's outside outside. So the wheels of the carts between the two greenhouses go through this biofoam and prevent anything from coming in. In Narnia, you have to go through the coats of a wardrobe. Here, you go through biofoam. Well, at least your hands and feet do. 
I step into the greenhouse and the first thing I see is vine upon vine upon vine of tomato plants. And these things are stretching up, I'm gonna guess already, I don't know, 15 feet high. And uh, these are tomato plants that never see soil. So you got the name right. That's why we call ourselves Long Vine. By the time they're done, these crops last about 50 weeks. So we get them as propagated plants, probably about 12 inches high. A single plant will last for 50 weeks. Correct. That's right. So these plants, uh, they last about 50 weeks. And as they continue to grow northward to the sky, uh, we have what are I call kite strings. And each week, those kite strings are flipped one or two turns, and that lowers the plant. So the plant, as it grows, uh, it will start to wrap around this gutter. So by the time it's done, it will be about 30 feet long. So this plant you see here at the beginning of the row actually starts about 30 feet that way. Accompanying us on this tour with General Manager Travis Jones is also the head grower of Longvine, a horticulturist from the Netherlands named Martin Weiters. I like horticulturists from the get-go, and then I know how to warm up to general managers if I ever have to, and Travis strikes me as a very nice one. But mostly I'm very keen on understanding the inner workings of this greenhouse, everything they're aiming for here, the whole business of hydroponic growing, from watering the vines to nourishing them to harvesting the fruits, the management of these movable trellises or kite strings, from the bugs they keep outside to the bugs they intentionally bring inside, and also that connection I mentioned earlier to the natural gas electric power plant next door. But the basic concept of growing things hydroponically, that's really square one. Let's talk about how different this is from using soil at all. There's no, no roots in soil here. Something like a coconut coir material. So there is no soil. We grow them in, it's pretty much a coconut husk, and four plants grow in that coconut husk in a, in a rock wall is what we call it. It's almost a box of insulation or a little block of insulation. And when we get those plants in as propagated plants that are about a foot tall, we put them on top of that coconut. And within a day or two of, of irrigation and water, those roots are already starting to reach inside. Uh, so no soil. As you use that water, talking about sustainability, the water that we use comes through the drip irrigation. The water goes exactly to those plant roots, right where they need them, and that fertilizer as well. And then as that water is used, it goes down to this gutter and then goes down to the end where it's then sterilized, where we can recycle and reuse that water time and time again so they get 100% depletion of that water. And we also get some benefit from being able to use the remainder of what's left in that fertilizer. And this is technically hydroponic growing rather than aquaponic growing. Yeah, the hydroponic, so it's growing in a growing medium, like Travis explained already, the cocoa peat. And with this dripper, we know exactly how many mils comes out of this dripper each irrigation cycle. We know exactly the EC, uh, the pH, and everything is uh, computerized. And the fertilizer is within the water? The fertilizer is mixed within the water, and the water that gets drained out of the bag that the plant is not using, gets recirculated, disinfected and reused, so it uh, lowers our water usage and it also lowers our fertilizer usage. Yeah, here we are in the heart of Utah in the middle of a mega drought, and so water would be of great concern to you. Correct. You know, the water we use is one-sixth the water of a traditional farm. Because we're able to deplete that water to its entirety, we use substantially less. Uh, and as far as production numbers, uh, we have 28 acres, but we grow as if we could produce 650 acres just in this 28-acre greenhouse because it's, again, a year-round crop, and we're able to recycle that water. 
I'm looking at a vine here and I'm seeing various stages of ripeness. And so uh, how, do, how does that work? Outside in, the, in people's gardens, you've got determinant plants. It's gonna be more of a bush. All the tomatoes come on all at once. That's not what we have. These tomatoes continue to grow. We've got about nine clusters of tomatoes on the vine at one time. And each week a new cluster is ready for picking, ready for harvesting. And as you can see at the top, you've got your flower, your tress. And as it grows, you get to a marble size, to a golf ball sized tomato. And at the end, you know, a good fist sized tomato uh, that's ready to harvest. You may not be old enough to remember, but for most of my life, most any store-bought tomato was orangish yellow or pinkish red, flavorless, and more often than not mealy in its texture. These days, you walk into a grocery store and you can find red tomatoes sold on the vine. My children don't think of them as seasonal products, you know. You can get them just about any time of year. The purists will always tell you that they're not perfect, these store-bought tomatoes, and they're definitely not backyard-to-table products, but almost. Well, up on a scaffold that's on wheels, I don't know what you call a go-kart with a scaffold on top of it, but uh, uh, she seems to be thinning out. Hi there. She seems to be thinning out, uh, I don't know, is she picking leaves or is she checking, what is she doing? She's actually clipping the plant, so as they continue to grow up tall, the kite string or the twine hangs down, and she's making sure that as the plants grow, that she clips them so they stay online, so they don't sag and break off. Oh, it's kind of like centering the posture of a human with the spine. Oh, it makes good sense to give some support, those clips. If I were a tomato vine, and oh, I could use a few clips to keep my head up and my shoulders back. <laughs> no kidding. So, Travis, I'm thinking about light now. It's a greenhouse, but there's sort of a shaded, translucent material that's over the top of the tomatoes. And how much light throughout the year do these plants get? We use artificial lights. These lights turn on around October to April, uh, and then they're shut off. But they're supplemental light. They turn on and they provide that heat. Now, just this year, we replaced a lot of our high-pressure sodium lights, the yellow ones, uh, with the LED lights. Uh, and that saved us about, I believe, 10 million uh, kilowatt hours, or the equivalent of 1,200 households. So between the hours of midnight until in the morning, uh, we turn on those lights, one, so we don't disturb the neighbors. Uh, that's very important to us. But also enables the plants to get the light necessary to continue to grow. On that front, we have also purchased some light suppression curtains that are being installed currently so as to not disturb those neighbors, you know, during the midnight hours. Light is a very big deal. I think we just forget how important it is. Uh, it's everywhere, we think, but it's really not everywhere or not in sufficient quantities in some places like in a desert in Utah where you're trying to grow tomatoes year-round. That kind of a crop is going to take more light than nature is ever going to give you. I've read that in Japan there is a scientist-farmer-businessman who has been growing 10,000 heads of lettuce a day inside one of the world's largest indoor farms with no natural sunlight at all. Imagine that, obviating sunlight altogether in food production. Well, here in Mona, there's ample sunlight in the summer months, but supplementation becomes very necessary come October, November after Christmas, or no tomatoes. What Travis is getting at here is that all this supplemental light at odd hours, day or night, is an imposition on neighbors. Have you ever driven to Vegas at night, coming from miles away and seeing that glow? Uh, well, 
Artificial light, light pollution, this is a big issue, not just for human neighbors, but for migratory birds, for insects, that sort of thing. Well, I think Longvine is weighing all the costs of their operation, trying to mitigate the impact. 28 acres of well-lit tomatoes in the dead of night, that is not a negligible thing. Well, let's hear now about that link to the power plant next door. Harnessing CO2, carbon dioxide, for food production is perhaps not such a bad idea, I think. Don't forget that even without cars, our bodies are emitting carbon. We're part of the cycle in a big way with every exhalation. And if you eat food at all, uh, that carbon likely came from a plant, don't you think? And the plant sucked in the carbon from the air, and the carbon had to come from somewhere. Well, Longvine is a greenhouse, and Longvine uses greenhouse gases, ironically in a green sort of way. Let's talk about the connection to the adjacent power plant. Yeah, it's a natural gas power plant, and they take off all that exhaust, and we capture that exhaust. So you saw that duct that comes across the street, comes into our boiler room, and at that location, we cool down that CO2 or that exhaust and use that exhaust pump the CO2 into our building. So it provides two things. It provides heat, but also provides food for the tomatoes through the CO2. And what you'll see from that heat from the power plant is on the bottom, in between each row of tomatoes, is a series of metal pipes. As we cool down that CO2 or that exhaust, we take that hot water that was used and pipe it through here to heat the greenhouse. We also have a few snow pipes up above as well to help melt the snow, but that helps to create the climate in this greenhouse. So am I breathing a higher concentration of CO2 in here than I would outside? You are. Outside, it's about 300 parts per million. Um, and inside, it's, uh, you know, ideal conditions, about 1,000 parts per million to 1,300 parts per million. Still safe. But again, it's that symbiotic relationship. We can take things that are, you know, valuable to us, energy creation, and use their exhaust, their waste to feed the world. So, yeah, it's those kind of partnerships. So who goes shopping for the partner first? Does the power plant go looking for a greenhouse or greenhouse go looking for a power plant? It's a great question. I think the challenge is it doesn't happen very much, those partnerships. You know, this is one of the only plants, only partnerships that I know of in North America that does that. It takes a lot to get through to the power plants and the energy companies to convince them that this is worth their while. But this one has worked out perfectly, and Rocky Mountain Power has been wonderful about it. Is it more common in Europe? Even in Europe, it's not as common. I'm not sure if it has something to do with liabilities, if that has a part to play with it. But it's, as Travis indicated, it, it's not a very common thing in industry. Hmm. This greenhouse is a gem, a rarity, in all honesty, and it's in the central of Utah. I mean, that's one of the reasons we picked this location. And going back to sustainability, the product that we pick here, you know, it's picked a day, you know, today, packaged, and then it's in your store in two to three days because we serve the Mountain West and some of California, as opposed to product that comes from Mexico, uh, you know, picked green, comes, you know, seven days, eight days, uh, and arrives here. So talking about your carbon footprint, uh, coming on transportation and trucks and the extra effort, um, you know, we are sustainable and we just experienced COVID. Um, and having a sustainable source of food when borders are shut down is extremely important. And I think the government's starting to understand the value of having local agriculture that we can rely on. So when winter comes and COVID hits, nobody's getting tomatoes if those borders are shut down. So we're more sustainable as a nation, which protects us in my opinion. If a plant were a cake, what would you want to have on hand before baking it? You know, from the ingredients to the utensils. Well, CO2, that's a vital ingredient, a nutrient for a plant. If you want the cake to come out of the oven moist at all, water would be a good idea to have on hand. We've already heard about water here at the greenhouse. 
And when it comes to implements that support the whole process, there's whisks, there's mixing bowls, there's measuring cups. Well, from the way I understand growing, traditionally, you got these things called roots, and they go into ground, into soil, and that's where a lot of the nutrition is found. Some of it does come out of the air, not thin air. It's thickened up at Longvine with the CO2. But on the list of the implements used, the mixing bowls at Longvine, if you will, if you're following my analogy, you've got the, the coconut fibers, the coir, the roots infiltrate these, and uh, no soil in sight. Uh, how's that recipe going to go? I wonder, do the vines miss dirt? And if they never touch soil, what is compromised in this recipe? I'm interested in the environmental switcheroo for in hydroponic growing. Uh, I'm a conventional thinker. It's like the plant doesn't know that it's not in soil? No, it, it, and it doesn't mind. It, it's uh, completely controlled, again, with the roots inside the cocoa bags. And to go back on your fertilizer, we take every second week, we, we take a water sample from our feed water. We take uh, samples, leaf samples from our plants, an old leaf and a new uh, leaf on top. And that gets sent to the lab. Based on the results that we're getting back from the lab, we are adjusting our fertilizer mixes again to get everything optimized for the plant. What about the things that aren't on that fertilizer bag? The other types of, uh, from I don't know, anything from magnesium to, I don't know, zinc, whatever a plant might need, the, the other Correct. minerals. Yeah? yeah. So everything is, is uh, measured. So from the lab, it includes the manganese, the zinc, the iron, copper, you name it. It's, it's, it's all on the analysis. The hydroponic approach clearly bears fruit, but how does that fruit stand up? And I'm not just talking about the clips holding those vines to the kite strings to keep them with good posture. Travis has promised us we're going to get to sample some tomatoes, but first we've got to investigate an aspect of this operation that some folks would think of as a little bit gruesome. I think it's actually quite marvelous when you consider it. So as we came in, you took great precautions to make sure I'm properly clothed and I've had my feet and my hands washed. And I'm thinking about other potential pathogens that might assault this facility, including whiteflies. I have a passion for the story of the parasitoid wasp and what <laughs> Encarcia formosa, it's called. And what I want to know about this, this little bug is why on earth would they call it Formosa, which means beautiful, because I've seen an, a picture of this less than a millimeter, and it's not pretty, it's not beautiful, it's not Formosa. You know, to me, it's a thing of beauty because it's a way to control these pests uh, in an environmentally friendly way. Um, and in fact, these pests that you had talked about, the Encarcia, uh, we've got them on a little sticky card, uh, almost a little index card, and their eggs hatch, uh, smaller than a pin of a needle. And they go and they look for these white flies and their eggs are under the leaves and they find these white fly eggs. Uh, they eat the baby and insert their own inside that egg. So I've never seen the movie Alien, but to my understanding, that's how it worked. Uh, but they're very beneficial pests. So we're using Mother Nature to fight Mother Nature uh, here in the greenhouse. And you pulled off uh, a, a piece of little paper here. Describe to us what you have there. Sure. Uh, just a little placard. And on that is some glue or some glue material covered in eggs. Uh, and we receive these uh, and we put them in the greenhouse, throughout the greenhouse. And those eggs hatch and go find our whitefly babies. So they put these like in the mail? 
Uh, they come in a box with cooling elements in it, and that's how they get shipped here. So I'm going to be very self-serving. Martin, you're a horticulturist. I'm a gardener. In my yard, I am attempting to do a little something like what you have going on here by planting the types of plants, uh, specifically umbelliferous plants, that will have the right kind of pollen that will attract from nature these little wasps or flies or whatever, the, the beneficial insects. Mm -hmm. Am I up in the night? Am I just, am I living a fantasy? No, outside you can do that because if you really look, and I'm going to use another insect, aphids, because that's a really easy one to identify is if, if it's parasitized. You have a lot of natural enemies outside that are visiting, in this case, your tomato plants in your backyard. And you will see a cocoon almost, like a brown shell, and that means it's been parasitized. So it's, it, in the outside, you have a lot of beneficials finding the Wi-Fi or the aphids in your, on your plant. The alien has arrived and with an ovipositor has inserted eggs into the victim. That's correct, yeah. <laughs> is there any other fungus or any other bug that is an issue here? Now, there's always a challenge with outside disease, and that's why we have screens on the outside, we have insect netting on the few roof vents that we have. That's why we're doing the disinfection prior of coming into the greenhouse, uh, shoes and hands, and for visitors, fully dressed up. With all the precautions, do you still struggle with anything? Uh, there's always a chance that something does come in. And that, that's just, again, that's why we do daily scouting on plants. When we detect a plant that does look different, we right away uh, either uh, do some testing ourselves or we send a plant to the laboratory to get it tested for whatever we think needs to get tested for. But actually, you don't have to use pesticides at all then. Uh, we only do it as a corrective action. I cannot okay. say we don't use it at all, but the majority is controlled by our biological control. And so once in a while, we do have to do a corrective spray to help out. But those are normally very soft products, though it doesn't kill the biologicals again. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. As we talked about the devious, minute wasps called Encarsia, almost as if on cue, a comparatively enormous insect flew right past us, not a wasp, and that prompted our guides, Travis and Martin, to take us over to inspect a hive. It's not what you're thinking, not a big wooden box, but this was one of many, perhaps hundreds, of small, easily lifted cardboard boxes, smaller than a shoebox. These are our bumblebees, uh, very different from the bees that you'll see out flying about. They don't swarm. They go and they find our flowers and they almost vibrate. They latch onto that flower and vibrate. And the way you're able to tell that it's pollinated is you look at the flower and there's little brown marks covering that flower. And these bees are important, one for pollination. But the interesting thing about these bees is at night when we use the artificial lights, they can fly and get confused. So what we do is we actually shut their little door to their bee house. It's a little box. We shut their door, which means bees can come in, but they can't come out. So we put these bees on house arrest so they don't get distracted, and they come back and get a good night's sleep, and then next morning they can go out and fly and pollinate. 
It's just a cardboard box with a pretty picture of a bumblebee on it, but I, I'll trust you. I'm not going to get any closer. I was stung recently by a bumblebee in my own yard. Wait, so there they are. They're, they're actually some of them are going home for lunch. What are they going home for? <laughs> bringing the bringing the pollen. Uh, oh right, to, this is their the this hive. is this is their food That's factor. Correct. So these are actually hives. That then these are hives. these are hives. These are like little hives in boxes. They're not your traditional hive where you'll see swarms and if they get full, they'll swarm out and create a new hive. These bees are very safe uh, for our workers. They'll stay in that box and they won't go ahead and swarm out and cover the greenhouse. So it's a very safe hive. They're bumblebees. They're bumblebees. I never thought of bumblebees as being a communal animal. I always thought they just hung out all by themselves. You know, that's what I thought too, but no, not the case. They always come back home to, to deliver the pollen to the queen. Do you have to resupply every so often? Do you wear them out? Are they, are they not uh, having offspring, posterity, children, grandchildren? Great question. The, the queen is actually stuck inside that box. There's a queen extractor that prevents the queen from leaving out. Um, so all of her children can go out, populate, and bring everything back to her. So stay at home, mom. And they don't populate like we would normally see with a honeybee. So after 12 weeks, uh, those bees have kind of fulfilled their life cycle, and they're replaced. A good gardener has to be vigilant, but in a commercial operation such as this, the margin for error is actually potentially quite large, and you've got to avoid catastrophic loss. So everything is monitored, everything controlled, from temperature to humidity to who gets to come inside, what gets brought inside. Fertilizers, water, carbon dioxide, light, heat, they even have the insects, the pollinators and parasitoids, down to a science. So what you're talking about is Controlled Environment Agriculture, CEA is the, what I've heard. And is there n- nothing you could say good about the old conventional type of growing in the backyard? No, of course, it, it's good. But this is a company that grows tomatoes. And we need to produce the, the highest yield possible with the best quality possible, best flavor possible, and lowest cost possible. And consistent harvest as well. And consistent harvest, correct. Marcus grows tomatoes at home, okay? It is not, from what you said, it is not your aspiration to go head to head with Marcus's tomatoes, homegrown tomatoes. Mm -hmm. It's not, And, and and as a consumer, it can't be, because if I want to do that, I'd just be growing Marcus's tomatoes. So that's what you were saying, right? Yeah, that's correct. And it that is, and again, it's we're here to deliver into the stores like a Costco, like a Walmart. That that's those are our clients, and then it just gets further distributed to to the people buying them. Right there, you heard Eric cutting to the chase. It's the well-known disparity between, oh, say, a fully ripe heirloom specimen such as the Nebraska wedding tomatoes or the beloved Cherokee purple or brandywine tomatoes. And in the interest of full disclosure, it's actually my wife, Sarah, who is the expert producer of heirloom varieties back home. It's not me. But somebody had to ask the comparative question and Martin answered forthrightly. They are doing business, controlling for variables that Sarah, my wife, never really has to even think about, such as how to coax a tomato from a vine in the middle of winter in Utah. We Smiths don't even try. Long Vine does it routinely, and there's a year-round market for these tomatoes. We learned a new term at this point, the fifth tomato. And what is that? Well, Long Vine will thin out their tomato clusters to groups of five on the vine. And the first two are the ones that are going to ripen up first, then the next two, and last of all, the fifth tomato, which sometimes doesn't make it. Don't know about you, but there have been times in my life when I have felt like the fifth tomato. 
The green tomatoes that you see here, those are normally the fifth tomato from a vine that didn't ripen yet. And since we have such a high quality standard, those will get cut off, potentially sold loose. As you see this card here, it will go to the packing house. It gets a final inspection done. Every tomato that will not meet spec will get pulled out. So there's actually a term, fifth tomato. When I go to the store, I don't look for the ones that are red on red. I look for some that are red on top. The first two are red, the next two are nice orange, and the last one's, you know, a little pink color because they last longer that way. So you can eat your sandwich and you don't have to rush it. I got to press just a little bit here on the flavor of hydroponically grown tomatoes. I'm wondering if you can, all, well, you're going to always vouch for these, I know, but can you control flavor? Can you assure or adjust or manipulate flavor in these, in these tomatoes? Now, you, you try to push the plant to stress them out a bit, which is called the genitive action on this plant, that make the plant think about reproduction, start creating the flowers and the tomatoes, and the more generative you steer it, the higher flavor profile you get out of your tomato. So that's one trick you can absolutely do with, with the crops. <laughs> Say that again. You stress the plant to put it into a, uh, the, the proper frame of mind to start reproducing. It's going to set fruit. Yeah. Uh, where does the flavor come from? It's, it's a stress factor that, that you put into a plant. The plant needs to last 48, 50 weeks. So you need to find that fine balance between vegetative growth and generative growth. So number one, you get the best production and best quality possible, but also that the plant keeps growing for those 48, 50 weeks. Uh, with that, you have different type of varieties as well again that have different flavor profiles within them again. So we can share our grape tomato with you and you're gonna be blown away how good it tastes. But before Martin makes good on that promise, reflect with me for just a moment on what he just said about stress. It's fascinating stuff here. Stress will elicit a couple of responses from the vines. First of all, it encourages flowering and then the setting of fruit. Any plant, as it matures, it's going to have a completely natural, built-in hankering to reproduce and thereby save its species, but apparently you can hasten things with a bit of stress. Second, a stressed tomato plant not only kicks into a productive mode, but the flavor profiles, as Martin describes things, uh, the flavor profiles become more pronounced. Not that I should doubt him with all his training, but still I had to look it up when I got back home. And sure enough, there are scientists who say in organic farming that stressful conditions can make for uh, sort of a boost in both nutrition and taste. What does any of that have to say about the way we, you know, raise our kids, being too soft on them, you know? Where's the moderate stress to prevent the sense of, of privilege, entitlement? Oh, I shouldn't even go there. So let's get back to the greenhouse for a little of that proof that's been promised. So this is where you're going to actually get to taste the product. And we'll send you some, uh, some TOVs home. But these are what are known as grape tomatoes. These are the sweet tomatoes that you can pop um, and eat a whole bowl full within five minutes. And on the right, we have a different plant variety that has uh, a higher sweet flavor to it. Ah. So let me pick you some of these. Okay. Really good, yeah. really good. Can you tell a difference between the garden oh, variety? No. no, I can't. I mean, I'm not trying to sell your product here, but give no. me a few more. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then it was off to another noticeably warmer section of the greenhouse for another sample of a very different grape tomato. Researchers in Antarctica have to get used to the cold. Martin, have you gotten used to the temperature in here and the humidity? No, absolutely. It doesn't bother me. But it's, but again, it's we do close the curtain based on sun intensity. So the high sun intensity turns into heat again. And this is because you asked this question earlier about light. So at a certain point, the light intensity becomes a stress factor for a plant that becomes too much. And then we say, hey, now it's time to close the curtain to help it out a bit. This one's warmer, isn't it? This room is, this warmer. is warmer, yeah. This variety is a little bit different, not as sweet, but still this variety is sweeter than you'll ever find it in a different part of the world. Again, because of our climate here. It's really good. Yeah. Yeah, so it's really as, good. Not as sweet as the first one, and it's not intended to be. No, no, it doesn't need to be. It's, it is what it is, but it's, it's a good. rich flavor, yeah. Juicier, yeah. less meaty. Tastes more like what you'd expect out of a marinara, which is not sweet, right? Yeah. I'm serious. That is better than anything I've grown, I think. Yeah. And Marcus, I'm sure, has done better. That is really good. I like the little sun gold things, but then after a few years of sun golds, I realized it tasted more like sugar than like tomato. And I reverted to this kind of a... Yeah, yeah. It tastes yeah. better to me. What do we call it? you got two varieties of uh, grapes. What do you call the two varieties? You know, we can't go into great detail as far ah. as the varieties that we do have. It's propriety, you know. It, it's, it's, yeah. As Willy Wonka had That's a fair so answer. That's right, that's right. So at the end of our tour, as you've just heard, Eric and I were given these grape tomato samples to taste on the spot. And then we were generously sent on our way with a couple boxes of their large standard slicer tomatoes, beefsteak tomatoes, if you will, which had been harvested that very day at a stage that's perfect for shipping and distribution, but not yet perfect for eating. The idea was for us to wait a little while for them to ripen. That's what we did, and we decided to bring them to work with us after they had progressed from pink to red. Eric, Tenery, and I took them to an outside balcony at BYU Broadcasting to sample them, to taste them, size them up. It's kind of nice out here. You know, it's a summer day, and I didn't want to do our final taste test of this episode indoors in some sterile studio. I wanted to feel almost, I mean, I can see garden-like things out there. So anyway, we have Tenery with us too, and Tenery, we want you to chime in about how it tastes when we get to that part. First though, Eric, when we decided we were gonna go down to Long Vine Growing Company, we had something in mind that we wanted to learn, and it wasn't just, are they flavorful tomatoes? I mean, that's important, but there was something else we were going after, and how would you summarize that? For me, it was kind of, I mean, I don't want to overstate it, but it, it, it was a bit life-changing because I, when I was standing there next to that place and just seeing the enormity of it, and, uh, and then to be able to walk out of the hot desert into a jungle that's three stories high and 30 acres wide, it's more than improbable. It's kind of like, it's hopeful, it's uh, inspiring. Um, it kind of renews your faith in, uh, the benign side of science. <laughs> That's how it felt for me. It was huge. I was just so impressed by the efficiencies, the design of the place, the scale of the place. They'd thought everything through from, yes, we had to sanitize our hands and feet, but the, but there were just like the water pipes doubled as the tracks for their little trolley carts, you know? And uh, it was just impressive from an engineering and design standpoint. But the fact that it's in the middle of an arid, desert in the Intermountain West growing tomatoes 
almost year-round, 50 weeks a year, mm -hmm. and within a completely controlled environment, and then trying to produce something not just palatable, but good. Yeah. So, Tenery, I understand that you discovered that your regular family purchases of tomatoes at a place like Costco, mm -hmm. you've been buying Longvine products. Yeah, I never really paid attention to the brand, but I, when I went home yesterday, I knew we were going to be doing this today, so I noticed that both our cherry tomatoes and our beefsteak tomatoes, both Longvine. Eric, take a bite. Have you, have you? I already did, and I like it. I mean, it's always going to be on a continuum, and nothing is going to approach a tomato right out of the garden. But this is more than, than serviceable well, for me. I'm, I'm not going to say that this tastes like a brandy wine or a Cherokee purple. It's not mealy. I actually, I agree. I don't think it's mealy. It's got a, a fresh tomato taste, mm -hmm. but it's not like I pulled it right out of my garden. But but what about the aspect of just shelf life and, and distribution, transportation of the thing that, you know, you buy them not fresh from your local corner fruit stand, you know, you go to a box store these days, and the efficiencies and the engineering, I mean, is that an issue that matters sufficiently to you that, that you would say, this is quality? Yeah. I mean, I'm lucky enough that I live in Utah and in the summer, I can easily grow my own. But year round, I, I can always have a tomato. It's the thing. I can always have a tomato. I think there is a need in feeding the world to have serviceable tomatoes that are not going to be mm -hmm. the gourmet or the heirloom. Uh, and so I get it. Yeah, I mean, I count on it. I count on it. I'm going to buy this carton of cherry tomatoes and my son eats them like fruit. So sometimes they're gone in a couple days, but they can last on my shelf or on my counter for, you know, a week or two. And I count on that. There's something in, in what they're doing that is balancing the needs of logistics with the flavor. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and what you're saying about how you can go two weeks with on your counter, it doesn't seem to change much. In fact, they didn't even really radically ripen. They just kind of like mostly just stayed there. Uh, I mean, it's weird to think about, but uh, that's kind of a miracle for production and distribution. Well, for all of this, I just have to say that the serviceable tomato, as I describe it, yeah, it's good, and it's going to stay on my... But that grape tomato that we got to taste down in the greenhouse was exquisite. It was. Yeah, well, we got two, and they were very different, but, uh, but both of them just tasted... They tasted very garden fresh, yes. If the high desert of the Intermountain West is a highly unlikely place for year-round indoor hydroponic tomato production... Human innovators are very likely to try to, you know, up the ante. For these kinds of futuristic conversations about our food supply and food systems and survival of the human race, you know, it always seems to be Elon Musk and Mars that people want to talk about. So, before leaving Longvine's greenhouse, I played the Elon Musk card with General Manager Travis Jones. Will any aspects of this Longvine growing method translate to food production, oh, say, in a space colony. How else would you be able to grow tomatoes on Mars? I mean, it's all about controlling your environment. But you can keep pests out, you can keep the temperature perfect. And the nice thing about these vines is they grow 50 weeks of the year. I'm pretty sure there's dust storms on Mars. You don't have those in the greenhouse, so it's 100% controlling your environment, and I don't see how you do it any other way. 
sincere thanks to the good folks at Long Vine Growing Company in Mona, Utah, for showing us their facility and for the great conversations we had. This episode was produced by Eric Schultzka and Jenea Tanner, with sound design by Parker Schmidt, Mitchell Towsley, and the BYU Broadcasting Sound Design Team. I'm Marcus Smith. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio. BYU Radio.